If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, we're going to be looking at verses 23 through verse 32. Matthew 21, verses 23 through verse 32. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to tell you briefly about next weekend's services. Um, Every week when we gather to worship, the foundation of everything we do is Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is King. He is the one we come to worship. And the focal point and the centerpiece of everything we do is always the Word of God. Once a year we set aside time in which we worship Christ and we look to His Word, but we also honor those men and women who have sacrificed and given and served and those who continue to sacrifice and give and serve so that we can enjoy the great freedom that we have within this nation to tell others freely about the good news of Jesus Christ. That we can go into our communities and we can share Christ. We can gather this morning and worship because of the freedoms that we enjoy And uh, the more I read and continue to read about the persecuted church around the world, and I'm reminded of those brothers and sisters who don't have those freedoms, the more I'm grateful for those who have given and served so that we can enjoy these freedoms. And so it's right and it's good for us to honor those men and women, and we'll do that as a part of our services next weekend. Uh, We will have a special guest with us, um, Colonel Gary Gilmore. Uh, He uh, served as a pastor for many, many years in um, Missouri. He was the pastor of First Baptist Church, Mount Vernon, Missouri. He also served in the National Guard as a chaplain and later full-time as as a military chaplain. He retired as the senior army chaplain um, there at the Joint Forces Headquarters in, in Jefferson City, Missouri. And he's a man of God. He loves the Lord. And he's going to lead us in the study of God's Word and help us uh, next weekend as we honor those who have served and continue to serve and sacrifice. So I say all that to say, come next weekend. You will be blessed. Invite a friend. Invite a coworker. It's a special time in the life of our church. Um, so as we turn our attention this morning to God's Word in Matthew, let's just read this text and pray and we'll work our way through it. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 23, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus said to them, I'll also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I'll also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We don't know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. 
And the man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to your word today. And Lord, I'm grateful that this word is inerrant and it is God-breathed. It's living and it's active. And we ask, Lord, in this sacred moment in which we open your word, we ask, Lord, that you would speak into all of our hearts. God, do business in our lives today. Help us to better understand who you are, who Christ is, and how we respond to you. That we might know your favor and your grace and your forgiveness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You remember the context of this passage is the final week of Jesus. We've already looked at the triumphal entry on Sunday. Christ goes into Jerusalem as the conquering king, but he's also the humble king. You'll remember in accordance with God's word and the prophecies in Isaiah, he rides in on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's the perfect king who's, who's not come to, to use or abuse the people, but he comes to lay down his life for them. So he is the conquering king, but he's also the Passover lamb. The crowds are worshiping him. They're quoting Psalm 118, Hosanna to the son of David, a messianic title. This is the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're waving palm branches and they're throwing down coats. Roughly a million to two million people worshiping. They think that 400 years of of Roman domination is about to be over. But within this large crowd of people who are worshiping Christ, there's a small segment of the crowd that's with them, the Jewish leadership, the scribes and the priests and the elders, and they're not worshiping. They hate him. Jesus is cutting in on their territory. He's making them look bad. And Monday morning was the final straw. Because you'll remember on Monday, Jesus goes into the temple and in accordance with the the prophecies in Malachi, he shuts the gates. He shuts down business. He has the audacity to claim that the temple is his personal residence. That it's his father's house. And he cleans house. They've taken his house that was intended to be a house of prayer for all the nations. This place where God had designated to place his name and his glory. And they have profaned it as a place of profiteering off of God's people under the guise of spirituality. They've turned it into a den of thieves and robbers. They've brought the secular into the sacred And Jesus responds in righteous indignation. Not a spur of the moment kind of flying off the handle that we typically think of. But these people who for 1,500 years 
consistently had profaned God's house. Brief moments in time in which the nation would honor God in the temple, but for large segments of time, they would profane his house. And Christ shuts it down. That God would rather have no worship than worship that is given to him half-heartedly. And so here, a line has been drawn in the sand. The battle is on, and these religious leaders, their goal at this point is to kill him. There's only one way to move forward, and that's to take this guy out. So Tuesday morning, Jesus re-enters the temple area, and what they've done is they've devised a series of questions. We're going to stump him. We're going to trip him up, and we're going to trick him, and then we're going to get him. But it's really hard to trip up the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But let's see. A question of authority in verse 23. Look at this. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? You know, at the heart of sinful man has always been a defiance against authority. Always. And in this passage, there is no doubt that Jesus has the authority. Jesus is going to make a public spectacle of these guys. If this were a debate, as we've seen some debates, there's no doubt that everybody would walk out saying, Jesus just whooped these folks. There's no doubt Jesus has the authority, and he hasn't just established it here. If you remember all the way back in Matthew chapter 7, after he got done preaching the Sermon on the Mount, they said of him that he taught as one having authority, not like these scribes. They got no authority. But this man, he has authority. You remember in Matthew chapter 8, the Roman centurion comes to Jesus. He's a Gentile. He's outside the people of God. But he knows authority when he sees it. And so he comes to Jesus. He's asking for his servant. And he says, you don't need to come to my house. I know authority. I'm also a man under authority. You just say the word. I know authority when, you, when I see it. And you got authority. He's not taking them. He's not taking his request to the scribes and the Pharisees. He knows they got no authority. But this guy, he's got authority. And the paralytic, Matthew chapter 9, you remember Jesus comes to the paralytic, and Jesus, what does he do? As he approaches the paralytic, he says, your sins are forgiven. What was the response of the Jewish leadership? He blasphemes, because there's only one person who can really forgive sins, and that's God. And what does Jesus say? So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Get up, take up your mat, and walk home. And what does he do? He gets up, takes his mat, and walks home. Listen, Jesus had demonstrated his authority over nature. He had calmed the winds and the waves. He had demonstrated authority over creation. You remember, he rides in on that colt, the foal of the donkey, upon which no one has ever sat. That donkey, that colt, recognizes his creator and submits to Christ. He's demonstrated authority over food. He took five loaves and two bread and fed 5,000. He performed miracles over disease. In the temple cleansing, he healed the lame and the blind, which were both signs that the Messiah had arrived. And just down the road in Bethany, just a few days earlier, he had brought a man back from the dead, and they saw it. Lazarus was still around to tell about it. He just demonstrated he's got the power and the authority over life and death. So make no mistake about it. The authority of Christ is not in question here. 
The real issue is we don't like your authority. We don't like you telling us what we can and cannot do. And that is the heart of sinful man. Any of y'all have little ones at home and they walk around saying, Oh, bless you, mom and daddy, for the rules. I love them. Obedience is my heart. No. They are inclined to disobey, to rebel. It is only by the power of Christ that they learn the beauty of submission. It's the heart of Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage? And why do the peoples plot vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. The thought of the nations has always been, we don't want God and we don't want Jesus telling us what to do. Now, does that sound a little bit like our current culture? We don't mind you talking about God, but we sure don't want anybody messing with our lives and telling us what we can and cannot do. But that's always been in the heart of man, that we don't want anybody telling us what we, we, we can or cannot do. We want to live our lives however we want to live them. Well, what's the reaction of God in Psalm chapter 2? He who sits in the heavens does what? He laughs. Because whether or not you don't want him to be in control doesn't mean he's not in control. He is. At the heart of Christianity is an acknowledgement that Jesus is God and that Jesus is the divine authority and the only response, the only appropriate response to the authority of Christ is to submit all of your life to him. But most people don't want to submit to the authority of Christ. I think this is the great hindrance for a lot of people in coming to faith in Christ. They know if I give my life to him, he's going to change some things. And I like living however I want to live. I don't want to surrender control. And the funny part about this is, just as it was with these Pharisees, so it is with all of us. Just because you don't want Jesus to be in control doesn't negate the fact that he is in control. So many people, they say, well, I don't want to surrender control of my life. But here's the bottom line. You really aren't surrendering anything because you didn't have control to begin with. You know, think about Pharaoh. He was all-powerful. In his mind, he was God. He's going to do whatever he wants to do. And he rebelled against God. About three plagues later, what did he realize? I ain't in control. I'm not as powerful as I thought I would. I can't do whatever I want to do and there not be consequences. Jesus summarized it this way at the end of Matthew. All authority All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The authority issue of your life has been settled. That's not the question. The question is, will you rebel or will you submit? And which you choose has eternal consequences. These men are setting themselves up against the authority of Christ. And they are fighting a losing battle. In the words of the great Indiana theologian, John Cougar Mellencamp, <laughs> I fight authority, and authority always wins. Listen to me. These guys are going to fight Jesus and rebel against his authority. How do you think that's going to work out? They're fighting a losing battle.
in verse 25, Jesus knows their trap. Again, it's really hard to outsmart the one who is omniscient. And Jesus is going to silence their little questions every time. Boom, they're going to silence right in his presence. Do you know what I believe? There's all kinds of people that come up with these um, tricky little questions. You ever try to share gospel with somebody and they got their little question, they got their little deal that they're going to bring to you. See, this stumps you and now you don't know. Listen, one day we're all going to stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and we will be silenced in the presence of the authority of Christ. And all those little excuses you've had and all those little scientific deals that you bring, they're going to be silenced in the presence of Almighty God. So these guys, they got their little question. Well, Jesus says, I got a question for you. If you answer mine, I'll answer yours. The baptism of John, what source? From heaven or from men? I just picture these little guys. These are the religious guys. These are the, in that day, these were the smart folks. These are the PhDs. They got more degrees than a thermometer. They know that this is the smart of the smart. This guy's a carpenter. He's from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? These are the Harvard grads. They put their little wooden heads together, and they got nothing. They know. If we say the baptism of John, it was from heaven, then Christ's going to say, then why didn't you obey him? Because if you recognize somebody's of divine authority, you better obey him. And they know if they say from men, the people will stone them because they all knew that John was a prophet of God. And so Jesus has answered their question. In fact, they say, we don't know. I bet there were very rare occasions when these guys gave that response to anybody. And the reality is that was a bold-faced lie because they did know. They just didn't want to admit it. And so they're silenced. And the more they rebel against the authority of Christ, the more their hearts become darkened to the truth of who Christ is. And then Christ brings a word of condemnation. Look at, look at verses 28 through 32. Boy, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and went. And the man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, The first. So they're admitting their own guilt. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Now, if they didn't hate Jesus prior to this statement, they certainly did afterwards because they thought themselves to be the best of the best. He says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. What was the whole ministry of John? It was pointing them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, I baptize you with water. One's coming after me who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. There's, there's one who I'm unfit to untie his sandals. He existed before me. He is God. His whole ministry was telling people, repent, trust in Christ. And they would not listen. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did believe him. In other words, these are the people who said, we're going to rebel against God. But later on, they heard the message of truth. They heard the gospel. And they repented. 
and they trust in Christ. They trusted in Christ, and he says, and they did believe him, and you've seen this. Meaning, these religious leaders, they saw the transformed lives. They saw the prostitute enter into the room. They saw her anoint Jesus' feet and weep and, and wipe his, his feet with her hair and kiss him and give her life to him. They saw how Christ transformed her. They saw how Christ transformed Zacchaeus. He was the lowest of their culture. He was a traitor. He was profiteering off God's own people, and yet he sought Christ, and Christ Christ went to his home. Christ ate with him. There was fellowship and there was faith. And he gave back a portion of how he had defrauded. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this home. This guy was greedy and now he's generous. His life has changed. They saw these things and they still would not believe. Listen, some of the most powerful means of evangelism are the changed lives of those who have come to know Jesus. Nobody can refute that. That the gospel changes lives. And they saw it and they still wouldn't believe. Do you know what I think Jesus is doing here? He's trying to get them to see uh, their lost condition. As I often try to say, he's trying to get them to get downwind of themselves and smell their own stench. Because they're wearing such nice clothes, they can't see the depth of their own sin. They think they're good, but you know what? At the end of the day... They're no better off than the worst of sinners because they haven't trusted in Jesus. You know, it's hard to get a person saved until they first understand they're lost. These people don't want Jesus because they don't think they need him. They think they're somehow going to earn God's favor on the basis of their good deeds. They're all talk. All talk. Oh, we love God. But no heart of obedience, no heart of faith. Listen, God is not impressed with your talking. You might impress some people, but you're not impressing God. God is not impressed by your claims. God is not even impressed with your good intentions. What pleases the heart of God is when you see the truth and you hear the truth and you believe and obey. That's what impresses the heart of God. So here are these religious leaders. They got a lot of activity. They got a lot of knowledge. They're doing a lot of good deeds. And yet it has given them no advantage over sinners like tax collectors and prostitutes. In fact, in some ways, all their good deeds have done is cloud their eyes to the reality of their own sin. They're going to miss out on heaven because they missed the most important act of obedience, which is trusting in Jesus probably good guys, done a lot of religious things in their life, looked good on the outside, but they stood condemned because in their hearts they never recognized the authority of Christ and trusted in him as the sole means of salvation. Here is my great concern for our church. This is my concern for our church that there are people who come inside our church, sit in our sanctuaries, or listen online, and they've never submitted their life to Jesus, never trusted in him as the only means of salvation. They just added Jesus to the hobbies of their life. But they think in their minds that somehow, that because they've gone to church, 
Or maybe because they joined a church, or maybe because they got dunked in a pool, or maybe because they know some scripture, or maybe because they had completed a one and got a Timothy award, or were dedicated as a child or christened as a baby, or went through confirmation. They think they're under the illusion that somehow because of their, their good deeds, all their great efforts, all their religiosity and spirituality, that somehow they're going to get to heaven that they got a leg up on everybody else because they've done some good things. And Christ, when they stand before him, is going to say to them, I never knew you because the key to entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not your good works. It's submitting and believing in Christ as the ultimate authority and the only hope you have of salvation. You know, these religious leaders... Christ was interfering in their lives. They were good with following God so long as God submitted to them. In other words, they wanted a Savior who served them. They wanted to be the authority. They wanted to be God. But the minute Christ started messing with their stuff and interfering with their life, they rebelled and rejected. They wanted the favor of God and the salvation of Christ, but they didn't want to submit to Christ as Lord. And you can't have it both ways. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. C.S. Lewis in his book, Surprised by Joy, great book, kind of his autobiography, doesn't go into great detail in his life, but the last two chapters really talk about his salvation, how he came to know Christ. And when he was talking about his pre, pre-Christian state, prior to trusting Christ, prior to commit, submitting to the Lord, He says this. This is what he says about his pre-Christian state. He says, But of course, what mattered most of all was my deep-seated hatred of authority. My monstrous individualism, my lawlessness. In other words, he's saying, I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. I don't want anybody telling me how to live. He says, No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what seemed to me to be a transcendental interfere. And he says, if this picture were true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost depth of one soul, nay, there least of all, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. In other words, he saw that at the center of Christianity was this transcendental inner fear known as Christ. And he knew that if I'm going to follow him, I have to yield control of every area of my life. If I'm going to follow him, there's no area of my life where I can put a little barbed wire fence and say, don't mess with this. He says, and that is what I wanted. Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. 
You know what I found? I found that Jesus is the transcendental interferer. He really is. He loves messing with our lives. He loves messing up our plans and all of our carefully laid schemes. Oftentimes, even if you, as you read all the great heroes of our faith, he loves messing with those things that we hold most dear, those idols of our life that we say, don't mess with this area. And he gets into those areas and he messes with them. Why does he do this? Is it that Jesus just loves messing up your plans? No, he does it so that he might have complete and total control over our hearts. So that we can learn that true joy and true peace comes when we submit everything to Jesus. In fact, that's how C.S. Lewis ends the book, is what he says is that I learned that if I really wanted joy, I had to submit everything to Jesus. Some of you, Christ is interfering in your life. You know it. And today, you would say, I'm aggravated. Because Jesus is messing with an area that I don't want him to touch. And you got one of two options. You can rebel. Or you can submit. But know this, to rebel is to fight a losing battle. The two greatest opponents to Christianity in the book of Acts, you know what they were? Two individuals. One is King Herod. He's going to stamp out Christianity. He knows the truth. He had been confronted with the truth of Christ. He knew who Christ was. He was confronted with the truth of the resurrection. But he didn't want anybody telling him what to do or how to run his kingdom. And he rebelled. Well, how did that work out? He was eaten by worms which is a pretty good indicator. You're not on the right side. You're not on the right track. That you're not in control. The other great opponent, you know who it was? A guy by the name of Saul. You know what the funny thing about Saul was? He loved God, but he hated Jesus. You know, I've found that there's a lot of people out there, they don't mind talking about God, but they don't like you talking about Jesus. And Saul, he thought he was the authority. In fact, he was on his way to Damascus and he had papers that let everybody know he is the authority. He can do whatever he wants to do. But as he was riding on his high horse, he was confronted with the one who has all authority. And rather than rebel, you know what he did? He submitted. And he's the guy who would go on to write Whatever things were gained to me, I now count as loss. He was the one who would write, I've been crucified with Christ. I died, and yet I live. I found true life. Not I, but Christ who lives within me. He would write, I've learned the secret of being content. Whether you're having abundance or suffering need, I can do all things through Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He is the one who would tell us in Romans chapter 12, therefore I urge you, brethren, 
The therefore is him pointing back and saying, in light of one who lived where you're living, in light of one who rebelled against the authority of Christ, I'm here to tell you, I'm urging you, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Submit everything to Christ. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual. That word is, in the Greek, it's logicane. That the only logical response to the one who gave everything to you. The one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The only logical response to the one who is the authority is to submit your life to him. You want change in your life? You want forgiveness, you want peace, peace like you've never known before, submit to the authority of Christ. Some of you are saying, you telling me, Pastor, I'm, I got to give every area? You mean I got to give up that drinking habit? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I'm telling you. You're saying I have to quit watching pornography? That's exactly what I'm telling you. You're saying I have to give up my finances? They really aren't yours anyway. Yep. You mean I have to give my marriage into your hands? That's what I'm telling you. Listen to me, though. What you gain in Christ is worth far more than anything you give up. And you can choose to rebel. You can say, this is mine and I ain't giving it up. But you're fighting a losing battle. Because one day every knee is going to bow. He is king. There's joy in submitting to him. And the end of your rebellion will be your destruction. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are a God of grace. God, we, we praise you that you are the transcendental interfere. And we're grateful that you interfered in the affairs of history. That even though we were dead in our transgressions and sins and you could have allowed us to continue on a course that led to eternal destruction which would have been just despite this you loved us and you intervened and you sent your son to die on a cross for our sins. God, I pray this morning for anybody who's not submitted their life fully to you. I pray this morning if they're thinking, I'm not sure I want to surrender control. They're wondering right now, <laughs> I'm not sure I can trust him. God, I pray if that's where they're at today, they would look to the cross 
and they would be so overwhelmed by the demonstration of your love that they would know that you're good and your plans are good and perfect. And I pray that they would submit their life to you. They would turn from their rebellion and they would place their faith in you. Your word says it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Overwhelm them with your love so that the only response of their heart would be to submit this morning to the Lordship of Christ so that they might know your salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.